0: Hello, I'm Paul Stevenson and this is Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast with a big-name interview show every Monday like this one and short four- or five-minute daily episodes released Tuesday through Sunday on a show that I call This Day Rocks. Thanks, as always, for hitting play. Today's show is a side two. It is John the Ox and Twistle Fiend. Now, The Ox was, of course, the bass player with The Who, one of the greatest bass players of all time. In fact, a Rolling Stone magazine reader's poll put him at number one in 2011. His playing earned him the nickname Thunderfingers. As an integral part of The Who, the band conquered the world, becoming one of the biggest bands on the planet. Now, for today's episode, I interviewed his best friend and musical partner for many years after John left The Who, Steve Luongo. In fact, they were so close that when Entwistle died in 2002, John's family asked Steve to read the eulogy at his funeral. Now I'm speaking with Steve as he's helped to produce and curate a new album of John's material, which is called John Entwistle Rarities Oxhumed. Get it? Volume 1. And as it says, it's a collection of rare recordings, demos, live tracks, and studio songs which have all been remastered and finished. Some are demos that he wrote for The Who that the band never used. One has Keith Moon's drumming parts on it still. Some are from his solo material. It's a kind of great mix of songs from all different eras and that sort of thing. 13 in total. This album is out now to buy or stream, so I recommend you giving it a try. But firstly, a really quick couple of shout outs. Big thanks to Jim Childs and Athel Manson for getting in touch this week. Great to hear from you guys. And Mark Sommer, Keith Thompson and Warren Lane as well. Hello to you. I always enjoy hearing from you all, whether that's on social media or by email. So thank you so much. And thanks to fellow podcasters as well, who all contributed during November to This Day Rocks episodes. Please show your support and check them out if you haven't done so already. Stephanie Myers from Stephanie and Stephanie Talk Tunes, Neil from Lep Pod, Phil Aston from Now Spinning Magazine, Philip Waters from Pink Floyd Collectors, and to Mac B from the Ugly American Werewolf in London podcast. All great hosts with great shows, so please do check them out. Right, as you'd expect in this interview then, there's lots of John Entwistle and The Who chat, which is great to hear from Steve's close perspective. Even big fans of The Who might learn some new things. Plus, we also venture into Steve's career a bit more as well. As well as his time with The Ox, Steve Longo has an impressive CV, having worked with legends like Leslie West, Anne Wilson of Heart, Eddie Money, Cream's Jack Bruce, Todd Rundgren, and many more. And We're going to hear some stories of his time with Cheap Trick's Robin Zander brian johnson from acdc and a brilliant story of his brief very brief time with richie blackmore and what happened between the two to make it so brief so it's definitely a fabulous interview please enjoy this chat with drummer and producer steve luongo so it's my pleasure to chat with Steve. Now, Steve, you're speaking to us today because of a special new release of uh, some John Entwistle kind of rarities, unreleased tracks, some demos, some live stuff, all that sort of stuff. And it's all come together in this box set called um, Rarities Oxumed, which is quite an interesting title. But before we get to that, I mean, how did the connection with John come about? How did you two hook up? And Because you, you formed a really strong friendship as well, didn't you?
1: Well, we did over time, yeah. We met... Um... At a music convention, the Nam show, they have them, they're all over the place, but there are two in the United, in the United States, one in June, the summer NAM, and then one in January, uh, the winter Nam. And this particular year in 87, um, John had been doing a lot of the trade shows and a friend of ours played with him at Music Messa in Germany. And, um, said you you know you have to meet my friends back in the states are you coming to nam he said yes uh that guy turned out to be our front of house engineer joe berger but he introduced me and uh other guys in my band to john and of course being shy and retiring i said do you want to (laughs) jam and he said anytime mate so i said oh that's a license to steal right so i went down onto the nam floor and nam if you've ever been to one of those things has a there, it's it's, uh, it's a manufacturer and endorsey festival. So okay. if, uh, John would be there for maybe Roto Sound or uh, Alembic or whatever it is. And so everybody's artists are at these things. And there's always a big jam. There's little jams. Guys get together on the damn floor or outside or in clubs or even in hotel lobbies. <laughs> but uh, But there's always one killer jam. And this year it was put on by uh, Kramer. Okay. And I went to the Kramer booth and said, listen, uh, John Elsel and I would like to play at the jam tonight. <laughs> and that's how it started.
0: Wow, incredible stuff. And obviously, again, before we get to the box set, I mean, um, what was what was John like to work with in the studio and, and write music with and that sort of stuff?
1: Well, you know, we we played, we did several tours together live uh, before we ever went into the studio. And um I think once John realized that we were settled into a good formula of what we wanted to do and how we wanted to do it, he felt comfortable enough. And we went to uh, England and recorded a demo for me to bring back to the States to look for a traditional record deal. And we wound up landing um, a kids show, believe it or not, which is really if you know about John, he's he's got a very youthful um, sense about him in his solo stuff anyway. Um so that what started the studio stuff we had been recording live on the road um but never in the studio and creating what was it like it was on one hand it was totally natural and it felt like we'd been doing it for our entire lives on the other hand you're looking out a picture uh out of a picture window over the Cotswolds spread out in front of you you're <laughs> in a recording studio state of the art recording studio in this home if you can call it that and it's just like wow so half the time it was let's get to work and do what we do and the other half of time it was amazing but you know it was just unbelievable but to work with john was very easy if he he was as easy to ask as he was to tell and um yeah it just it was a it was a great process. I learned so much. And it, he's a very generous person to write with. So.
0: Absolutely. Good stuff. So let's touch on this then. I mean, rarities exhumed, Volume 1. Um, quick question. Does that mean there's more volumes to come?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Oh, uh, fantastic. It, it, certainly, as long as I can keep the integrity of the, of the material up of course, to where yeah. it des- deserves to be. There'll be as many volumes. I, you know, I have an archive of our... Creating together over a period of now seven eight years of studio stuff demos and things like that, so it's a matter of sorting out the right things because I'm I like to think that this collection is fan driven. I, I mm-hmm. chose what I chose and I will choose in the future based on what the fans I, that they have come to expect from John, and um, so it's it's uh, it's a labor of love. It's it's been a long time, and, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's overdue, maybe. <laughs> there
0: Absolutely. will be volume two. There will be volume two. That's good to hear. Um, you mentioned there it's a labour of love. It, it's long overdue. So, as I said earlier, it's it's unreleased songs. It's demo recordings from his time in The Who, even. There's, there's live songs on there as well. I mean, how on earth did you... You said you put it together for the fans, with the fans in mind. But how on earth did you go through what must have been quite a wealth of material just to, just to produce volume one?
1: Well... I didn't really have a, I was lucky enough to, to hook up with Deco Entertainment and um, I felt that I had a vehicle where the fans would actually get to hear this stuff. Mm-hmm. And you know, we were not looking for a number one on the hit parade, although if that happened, that would be beautiful, <laughs> but it's more about, you know, you have uh, you have this stuff in the fridge and you don't want it to go to waste and there's people who should sit down and enjoy this. And so that you know, that was the motivation. So a lot of the stuff in the the, the studio recordings in the front, and at the top of the uh, record are either outtakes, uh, remixes, or alternate versions of songs that we did. So okay. in the case of the in case of Bogeyman, which features Keith Moon on drums, mm-hmm. um, that was an incomplete track. John wrote that obviously, sometime in the 70s. And Uh, Sang the vocal played the bass Mooney was playing the drums and he presented it to the who as a possible demo for whatever album would have come next and they thought it was too humorous and so they passed on so so the song just sits there up in a tape room for 20 years or whatever it was 24 and um, and it was perfect for the project that we were doing so I said we should finish this so we added the rest of the tracks and and I don't. I, John didn't even realize it was Moon playing drums on the track. Okay. I said, "Who's playing drums?" Because I hear these fills in the end. It's going to catch my ear, right? And he said, "I don't know." And I said, well, that's, "I think it's Mooney." And he went, ah, yeah, yeah, it's, it's him." And it's like, "Oh, okay. Well, what don't we want to use about this?" Right? <laughs> exactly. So, um, so that was. I mean, the the whole the whole experience of of having to rewrite these. Lyrics, because in the case of the song that's on there, "Sleep with You," that I, I wouldn't sleep with you. That was never released ever because it's probably not a place for that in a kids show, <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so that got scrapped. Not scrapped. I mean, we ha- we had done it as a as a serious um, demo for uh, you know, I mean, to demonstrate us to a, a record label. And we wound up getting the kids show so things like left for dead which is also in the studio recordings, that's alternate lyrics okay. the the lyrics in the version that's on Oxumed was a little too r-rated for children's television <laughs> and uh, so it, it was you know it was pretty easy to pick those things because they existed i knew they existed being the producer or co-producer as it was um you know, I had that whole catalog and I have all that whole archive. Uh, so it, that was easy. The 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 tougher part was trying to make the two demos that that we did together for possible inclusion on a, a who record that was tough, because I had a million different mixes of it. And it was meant to show the song, I guess, essentially to Pete and Roger, which never happened. But <laughs> You know, so it was mixed and recorded with that in mind. You don't, you know, do an ultra production. You just kind of knock it out so everybody can get the vision. And then when it didn't happen, I thought, man, you know, we the intention, John's intention in those two songs was here's songs that we wrote for you or that, you know, and I thought the fans deserved to hear that regardless of the quality. So we remastered a lot of the stuff to make it sound better than it actually sounded. And, you know, that's, I guess that's 20 years later, technology.
0: Absolutely. And uh, going back to Bogeyman, then you, you brought it up and you said that perhaps uh, the band thought it was too humorous to be a, a Who record. I mean, speaking of humor, I mean, tell us about the middle part because that's not normal instruments there, is it?
1: <laughs> no, no, it's not. <laughs> um, when John went into the studio that day, they had done the basics, which was the bass, Ah, uh, the guide vocal and and the drums, and then do- John went to, um, to do the horn tracks because there was a big, whole big uh, four part horn arrangement. As John, you know, played all the horns, mm-hmm. and he turned up at the studio and forgot his horns, <laughs> which I suppose that's easy to do, you know. I, uh, and he wound up, and and all the horn players are going to go nuts because I I don't know the right terms but the embouchure of, I think it's what it's called, that you make that sound. Please guys, I I don't mean to upset anybody. He did all the parts like that, but playing the notes. So when he did those slurs, he's doing that with his mouth only in front of a microphone. (laughs) That's fantastic. Yeah, and we kept it. I mean, why would you not keep that? It's such a fantastic story and it's so quintessentially John. Yes. You know, it mm-hmm. had to stay. We had a lot of fun with that song.
0: Yeah, it's a great song. It's a very spooky song as well. It's fantastic to hear. Um, And and you mentioned, again, I Wouldn't Sleep With You, a great song title. Uh, So Funny subject matter as well. Um, It's just great. Another one to to touch on is um, Under a Raging Moon. I love that song. I've interviewed John Parr, who wrote the the original track as well. And that one's a live version that you've put on this record, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is. Um, You know, the thing about John is he he loved for everybody to stand out and take their bit. And we were looking for songs. We didn't you know, you just don't want to play the who catalog or even the mm-hmm. obvious stuff. And I thought, you know, we were talking it over and um, we were talking about doing a solo. And I said, well, why not? You know, that's a great song. Daltrey did a great version of it. And the whole end of it is all those drummers going back and forth. So it, it's kind of perfect for a solo. It's right in my tempo. Um, you know, where I like to, to play and it's it's a furious song the way we did it. And it was just, uh, you know, it was fun. And John said to me, uh, you know, can you play play a little longer so that I can smoke a whole Winston 100? <laughs> he didn't like standing on the stage unless he had a, a fag or or, um, or a drink. And uh, but that's so that's how that thing came about. And the the clicking that you hear in the middle when the solo breaks down, I left it on there because the people that that's a, a gag that I do with a mechanical monkey or a, it's a, I have a bunch of them to it, but it actually plays a beat and girls don't like drum solos very much. So <laughs> you hold up a little stuffed animal, man, they go, you know, all of a sudden, no, <laughs> drum solo, let's go. And he plays, you know, bop, 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 bop. And I put it up to my vocal mic so that it's visual. There's a spot on him and you're hearing it through the house. And then I play with one hand and, you know, and do that whole thing. Um, it's you know just a it's just a, a a gag in the middle of the solo but i used it in there because i needed more time so john could finish his cigarette
0: <laughs> brilliant stuff and That's a question funny. that i like to ask people as well when they've uh, just released new music or, or a recent album is what is your favorite record what is your favorite track on the record sorry and, and why
1: on this one um yep. i think it would have to be i'll try again today Okay. Um because it's powerful, it's it, it the the message in there is, you know, I, I wrote it a, I wrote my portion of the lyrics about a guitar player friend of mine who was as good as anybody in the world but yet couldn't get over that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, but he tried every day till his last day and he deserves uh, it's just about the struggle I guess, you know, to be a musician. So I like that. And uh, and I love the uh, the Latin part in the beginning and certainly <laughs> at the end. And that's, again, a testament to John and his sense of humor and being yeah. able to musically hear that inside of that riff. So that's probably uh, my favorite from, from this record.
0: Fantastic stuff. And then just in terms of the, the feel of the record as well, you've touched on a few different bits there, the humor, the Latin, there's some furious rock, there's some almost proggy feel to it as well. I mean, it, there's something for pretty much everyone on there, isn't there?
1: Well, there is. And it's funny that you said about the Prague because I'm the the Prague guy. OK, I, I, love, <laughs> I love time. And when we, and I'll tell you a funny story, I don't think I've ever told this before. But um, when we John, how this archive happened is when John and I decided, you know, look, we've been playing together for years. We like what we're doing. Let's you know, let's take it to the next step and try to do a record. And again, a judge just a generous guy to create records with and write with. But um, so I brought all my songs that I wrote you know, in my songwriting demos to England, and we're playing tapes back and forth. And there was one that was just so prog, it was <laughs> ridiculous. And it's a piano, just, you know. <laughs> and he goes, well, that sounds like a squirrel running on a piano. <laughs> So, so we didn't do that one, (laughs) (laughs) but, you know, anytime I would play anything like that, he would go, there's that squirrel again. (laughs) You know, it's just, (laughs) so it was funny. But yeah, priming and John embraced the frog. He loved the time signatures and, uh, and that was probably most evident in the soloing that we did, Mm -hmm. you know, on stage because it was spontaneous and he just would play the, the most inspiring things that let me just go off. So yeah, it was, uh, I think there is something for everybody. And what I hope is that new people that haven't really gotten a proper dose of Whistle Mm -hmm. will be introduced to it because there's so much to the guy, um, you know, from the who to things that we haven't even finished yet. So I, I, I hope he'll be introduced to some new fans.
0: Absolutely. And you you spoke about the the, the people finding out about him because you think of John Entmussel, you think of The Who, but but John was the first one of The Who to do a solo record and and people don't really, well, they probably didn't realise how good his voice was as well. So it was always great to see that side of things from him as well, isn't it?
1: Right, it yes it is and in the ca- in the case of this record again there's a a track on there called Back on the Road which also he cut in the 70s originally with Kenny Jones on drums. Oh yeah. And so that's his vocal and he's playing the piano and the bass part and it's a beautiful line. Um but he didn't like the said the way the drums were tracked. So he had me I had to play exactly what Kenny was playing because he bled into the the vocal <laughs> which we were keeping but it was, uh, you know, he, he was a, f- a fantastic player. So it was kind of fun and challenging to play in somebody else's groove on top of their fills. But uh, again, you know, that's if you listen to that song, I sp- that's a lament that defines Entwistle for me uh, because it's it talks all about what his drive was. I got to get back on the road. Life is yeah. like a heavy load around my neck when I can't hit the deck. He just needed to be, and that's why we got along. He didn't want to do two months and then have ten off. He wanted to just do it, and it was it was great. Fantastic done. stuff.
0: And in in terms of the the cover art as well, I mean it's fantastic. Yourself and uh, Johnson, Chris worked on that. And there's a, an awful lot going on there on that cover, isn't there? I mean, tell us about that.
1: Well, there is, and if um, uh, if there, uh, let's see there's a, a whole chain of events that happened to that. When I finally decided that I had been in the studio looking through the archive and I finally decided I had enough things to commit to doing a record a rarities record. So I rang Chris up cause uh, we've been friends since he's 16. And, um, you know, actually it's, it's odd to think that I've known him longer than John now, at uh, this yeah. point. but we've stayed in touch and I love him. He's a, he's a, a lovely man. And, um, I rang him up and I said, Chris, I'm doing this rarities album and I, I really need a clever name. And like a bolt of lightning he said Oxumed. And I was like, Oh, hold on a minute. <laughs> Brilliant. It was I mean, you know, it just without missing a beat. And I thought, was that channeled somehow? You know, because it was it bordered on spooky. And once I realized I had the latitude uh to be that eccentric the way I knew john was, I said, man, we can have so much fun with the imagery. So the the album, and what you see in there, um, to the right where the moon is, and the little owl is in the top of the tree, that's from his, uh, those characters and that imagery is from whistle rhymes, which is one of his solo albums. Um, then you'll see uh, next there's the bone suit from the Isle of Wight. And uh, there's these are all things that he loved that were a part of his career. And I hid them in there. You know, obviously, there's the shovel exhuming all of these wonderful things. But um I'm not. I, everybody probably knew that he smoked Winston 100s and drank Remy and, uh, and so on and so forth, but I don't know how many people knew that his favorite film was Ivanhoe, and uh, there's another film. So I, I, I just had fun, um, you know, just playing with this stuff. And the gold record, a lot, a lot of people know about the gold record and a lot of people don't. If you've seen The Kids Are All Right, Um, there's a scene and actually John's that's John's house and the snake fountain, I don't want to give away too much of it. Um, but out in the back of this house, if you've seen, the kids are all right. He walks out of the house, walks down the stairs with a bunch of gold records, gold, whatever, platinum records. And he breaks the glass and he like, he's skeet shooting He says Paul. And the thing goes off and he shoots it and misses it. And so eventually what he did was opened up a Les Paul. I think it was, guitar case, with a Thompson submachine gun in there and said, Paul, and then the record flies through the air and he peppered it. So that's what the gold record is for. Um And, the, you know, Chris turned me on to a lot of things that even I didn't know with regard to, you know, I mean, early years, things that they enjoyed together. Or So it's all in there and it's hidden in there. And the, the structure is actually represents a crumbled tower record. So that was... It's just a lot of fun and and uh and chris was a big help in in you know steering me down the right path with some not quite uh so familiar items it was good
0: it's a fantastic touch as well because obviously anyone who's a fan of the who or, or john and his solo work will, will will get most of those and they'll see most of those and it's another draw to, to buy the album and buy the physical copy as well isn't it
1: yeah it's uh, you know I, i'm from that time when you got yeah. an album cover and you couldn't wait to see what was in it and the you know I, I had the the pleasure of working with a fantastic artist uh, Lee Stokes who got my vision as I interpreted it to him um, and it just it's just perfect there are there's a bunch of stories in there and when I say that there's a you know the the items are pretty obvious there's a Ouija board there's a fountain with snakes around it there's trees there's all kinds of things and they all really mean something. Um, it's it was just fun to do. I, I know John would have enjoyed doing it. He mm-hmm. said, Oh, I'll put this, I'll, I'll move this. Over. He was great fun to work with that way. Fantastic
0: stuff, indeed. And we're talking about getting a physical copy. I mean, where could we buy this?
1: Well, if you go to John um you you can order it there um, you can get it just you know if you want a digital copy it's it's on all the services but uh deco entertainment uh but the easiest way is is uh, johnnwistle.com um, and there's only one h in John Entwistle. <laughs> absolutely indeed he always said that townsend got his age yes <laughs>
0: very true very true um and just speaking about uh, with john uh, an ox's tale a documentary that you worked on um you finished it after john's sad passing a few years afterwards i mean how was that process putting all that together
1: that was that's an example of john wanting to do something all the time I mean he liked being a country gentleman in his beautiful estate and the whole thing but not for more than a couple of days at a time (laughs) and so i I had an opportunity to go over with a filmmaker and um and i said to john you know maybe because he was getting ready to to go out with the who that year and uh, i said you know maybe it would be fun to uh, expose the process you know because if you've been in a band for 40 years um, and a successful band like the who or the stones or or one that's perpetually turn uh touring there's a mm-hmm. process to gearing up again and with john it was everything wardrobe um traveling clothes his rig it was always a new rig for every tour okay. and so i thought you know what we should document this you know take uh keep track of the phone calls to the tailor or to this one or that one talking to the roadies about delivering this gear and it it would have made a very interesting film um but (laughs) the let's just say the financing ran out from the you know the suits um and we were left with just an 11 minute reel and then John passed and it's actually John named it because the original intent when I was at the first editing sessions in Burbank, the original intent was to complete this thing because it was directly related to the Who and they were going to include it in the merchandise. So John said, well, call it an ox's tail, right? I mean, <laughs> brilliant. So we, we have ox zoomed. We have ox's <laughs> tail. And, um, and so that I kept the title. And, and when John passed, uh the following year um i got you know the people start to come out and say well i heard there's this film and somebody wanted to sell me uh the tapes and i (laughs) you don't want to do that and i wound up hooking up with icon entertainment we finished it and um and pete was very generous to you know we got to go over and i sat with him for uh i got a, a london crew and and We went over to the studio and i hadn't seen pete since the memorial service or the Mm -hmm. funeral so it had been a while and we're and i figured out i hope you know i hope he gives me 15 or 20 minutes we sat there for three and a half hours i had to change change the tape so many times uh it was just it was amazing and um and it really Gave me a great insight to Pete and John, because that part of John's life, you know, that was before me. So to connect with Pete on that level, I mean, we talked about everything going back to bombed out London and playing in the rubble and finding artifacts. It was just it was cool. It was uh, and very, you know, very open and and honest. He, He was great for that. So we finished the film. A lot of people in it: uh, Chris Squire, uh, Billy Squire. We had all the Squires, uh, <laughs> uh, Roger Glover, uh, Billy Sheehan, a bunch of people, and they all gave beautiful uh, interviews and remembrances of uh, of John. And it was just it, you know, it it was seemed fitting. I, you know, I don't, you don't want a headline to be the footnote to your life <laughs> that was so filled, and even and an incorrect headline um it's you just don't want that and i wanted to show the side of john that was the humorous guy the creative guy the guy that you know changed the whole face of that instrument forever yeah so
0: absolutely and what was it like um putting it all together i mean was it sad in some ways that you were doing it after he'd passed or was it kind of fun to to share the stories and learn the stories was emotional What, what, what was going through your head all that time
1: it was you know the 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 first bunch of years were extremely hard and and the thing that was I was used to not being around John because he lived in England and I lived in Mm -hmm. New York but we would talk every day or every couple of days and it was jokes and we'd fax crazy stuff back and forth (laughs) um so part of it seemed normal because I would be here we were business partners and and musical partners and he was like an older brother to me. Um, and I couldn't be more grateful for that. So, um, so putting a lot of the work that I had to do was totally normal because he wouldn't have been there for it anyway. But when it got, when it got emotional or, you know, tugged my heartstrings was when I would complete the day's work and my instinct would be, Hey man, you got to see what, and, uh, so that, that was tough that's that'll always be tough and when i when i listen to the live tracks and i listen to the fury that we played with cuz man you talk about aggressive and everybody in that band any of everybody was on the same page and when i listen to that stuff and i can feel myself you know playing i can feel my mind wanting to fire my muscles how it felt to do those things and that that hurts too because you know you're never going to do that again. Incredible,
0: incredible! And um, if, if people haven't seen it, definitely check it out. It's on I think it's on Amazon Prime, isn't it? Things like that. It's
1: on yes, yeah, on Prime. You can find it easy. Just look for John Entwistle an Ox's Tale, and Ox's Tail, and you know it's it's a it's a great look at at an amazing person who deserves more st- more spotlight than he's gotten. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, in terms of you, Steve, you've worked with so many other people. It's not just John. Um, The the list goes kind of on and on and on. Um, What I want to talk on um, just as quickly is a recent-ish one you did with um, Cheap Trick's uh, Robin Zander. Uh, You you came together and you guys, you, you toured and you played together for years. Now, what's it like working with him?
1: it's again well i'll tell you an interesting story there when we were when john and i were discussing putting the ent band together the final incarnation in 95 robin was one of the people that we talked about as a possible vocalist okay and now i've known robin for i don't know almost 20 years is it 20? yeah it has to be almost 20 years and he rang me up you know we became friends because we would meet at these charity you know you go and play at the charity with whoever's in town and and it's usually a good thing so everybody supports everybody else's uh missions and he rang me up and said you know do you want to play at this golf tournament and so on and so forth for the first tee and uh, so we became friendly as players you know as as musicians and he rang me up had to be 2012 maybe 2011 and said you know uh what are you doing and i said you know I'm working in the studio. He said, well, do you want to put a band together? And I said, (laughs) you know, sure, because we had he had played with my guys. I had a a, a guitar player and bass player that I played with forever. And that was who I played with Robin with in, you know, we at the City Burn Davis Arts Center or at Chi Chi Rodriguez. So he knew us as a trio, as a powerful band. And he said, you know, do you want to put a band together? Could we use your guys? I said, I think so. <laughs> and um, it was like it, it was like going back you ever have those dreams when you went back to school, but you knew everything, right? And it was like, oh, man, I'm in fifth grade and I'm a genius. Um, it was kind of like that was kind of like getting to do your garage band days or in my case, your basement days again only were in our fifties and we're, you know, we're playing our favorite music, but it feels like that Xander never came off as a, he was never a prima Donna and he was always prepared voice. I, I've never heard anybody warm their voice up like that. He actually screams and yells ha, 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 at the top of his lungs. He needs another room to do it. in cause it's like, oh, how do you do that? And, um, it was fantastic working with him. We we weren't worried about where we were gonna play. I mean, you gotta realize he has to keep his throat in shape. If cheap trick isn't, they don't wanna burn themselves out playing, uh, you know, uh, 250 gigs a year, but Robin wouldn't mind doing that because it keeps his pipes in shape. And that was the, you know, that was really the goal. I was happy to get out and play. Uh, Mark and Larry were happy to get out and play. We used my crew it was a mutual tour manager that robin and i had in common it was just it was like a match made in heaven and we'd be at a show and he'd say do you guys know uh, all along the watchtower or do you know a uh, whole lot of love and we'd say yeah yeah and then he'd say all right let's let's do that and it was like okay <laughs> and, and it wasn't he wasn't overly cons- he just he, he was reckless in the fact that he was just going to do whatever he'd call a John Lennon song or a Beatles <laughs> song or a, a bad company song, or I mean, we used to do baby blue and before they used it on the Sopranos, by the way. Um, and it was such a gas to sing those harmony parts with him. Cause he's coming back in my monitors and I'm singing the high part above him. It's, and he was great i mean no crap about traveling i mean we always stayed in in nice places and we always traveled well but it it wasn't it was just a guy out there playing rock and roll it just happened to be one of the greatest singers in of our time Wow.
0: Incredible stuff. I love hearing these stories. And you mentioned that uh, Robin kind of screaming there and that kind of leads on to somebody else that you worked with through uh, Chris Williams, the ACDC um, bass player. And um, you did a project with him, which brought in Brian Johnson. And wow. I mean, tell <laughs> us what happened there.
1: Well, it was um, that was an incredible thing, too. You know, when I moved to Florida, whatever it was, 18 or so years ago, I figured, well, that's it. I'm leaving the city. You know what I mean? My life is over. You cross the border. They <laughs> give you a Cadillac and a cigar and tell you to go. And uh, and it was anything but that. I, I was here for 13 days and a hurricane showed up, a really bad one. And we were spared. We had one coconut down in the backyard. And I said, that's it. We have to do a benefit concert for the hurricane victims. And that's how I came to meet Cliff who was a neighbor. I mean, when I say that, you know, live a mile or two away from where I was. And, um, and so I got his uh, radio station K rock that was putting it on. Uh, The owner said, I know Cliff, I'll give you his cell phone, which is, you know, taboo in our business. But it was cool. So I and I called Cliff up and I said, hey, it's Steve from John Whistle." And then and he said, yeah, man, we'll do it. I, he said, I'll, I'll call my singer. And my singer <laughs> lives up in Sarasota, which is an hour and a half from here. So we did that show. And after that show, Cliff and I became friendly because, you know, we're in southwest Florida. It's a beautiful place to live. But there's not, you know, there's not a music scene like there is in Atlanta or New York or L.A. or San Francisco, you know, any of the hubs, Philly. Um, It's just kind of a a destination. So Cliff and I became friendly. We would go eat sushi together and have the conversations about music. And, you know, you find somebody that speaks your language. It's it's a beautiful thing. So um, one day, I mean, we were hanging for a while and i said well, you know man because i got the feeling he kept we would talk about acdc and the fact that they hadn't toured in six years and he was mm-hmm. like you know and I, I said well listen one night i said listen man you know uh my guitar player is up in new york and he has a room in my house and if you ever want to just jam you know i'll bring him down and he said yeah that's a great idea my singer lives in sarasota let's do <laughs> something how do you not do that <laughs> so I've always been of the mindset that if you're going to do something with guys like that, the, the big mistake is that everybody thinks they're going to run up to you and say, man, I know how to play back in black. No, I, I so do I. And I've done it a hundred thousand <laughs> times. I want to do something else. So I, I had Mark, my guitar player, come down from New York and we went into my I don't, a demo studio and we wrote some songs for Cliff to learn the bass parts to see if he liked him. And he, what an amazing bass player and ACDC fans. Cliff Williams is such a melodic, insightful musician. Uh, He's the best pedal point bass player out there as far as what he does in ACDC. But there's another guy so much more than that. And I mean, as if that isn't enough, but working with him and working on bass lines, he was just, it was incredible. So then we decide, okay, well, we have these seven or eight songs that we've routined over, you know, a month or so. And he said, well, why don't we go, Cliff said, you know, why don't we record them? I said, is there a studio? We found a studio. And he said, well, I'll have Brian come down and you know, see if he wants to sing on them. So Brian drives down and he comes into the control room with his book of lyrics and he starts going over them with me and how's this looking? Here I am thinking that, you know, this is the guy that wrote Back in Black and some of the biggest anthems of our time. What's this experience gonna be like? And he's there saying, is this okay? Do you like (laughs) this? Is this all right? And like, wow, the freedom and, it's unbelievable. It's like it's it's like getting in a supercar and just driving it around anywhere you want to go. He, he, they were both like that. They were both as as professional and pleasant to work with in the studio as anybody I've ever had the pleasure to work with. And the stuff that we created is uh, it's it's pretty special stuff. We didn't get to put any you know much of it out, so we did, we toured behind it. Uh, you know, we gave one of the songs away and we toured and then we played, um, New York and AC/DC's manager was there and the head of Sony music was there. And, um, <laughs> I guess that kind of spurred AC/DC to go to Vancouver and, uh, do Black Ice. So anything that we would have done stopped right there, which is, you know, but we did it and like Entwistle, I have it. So ah. So
0: we, I was going to say, are we going to get to hear it at some point? Is it going to get a proper release? It,
1: it should. It, it really should. There are there are four songs on that in, in those recordings that are just exceptional. Um, I, yeah, I, I would like to hope that. I, I think I have a good home in Deco for something like that. And, you know, Cliff will be coming back from his uh, from his summer retreat. So we'll, we'll get together and see if we can't figure something like that out
0: incredible look forward to hearing that definitely um and then on the list of things obviously i got a press release through saying who you've worked with this sort of stuff as if i didn't know uh, leslie west and you've got jack bruce on there and todd rundgren's on there and uh, ann wilson from heart and all that sort of stuff but someone i want to touch on is richie blackmore what's your connection
1: with richie <laughs> um well i was in rainbow for a week okay <laughs> i got i got a call from a friend of mine this, this is a good story I don't tell it very much I got a call from a friend of mine saying um this is out on Long Island Richie lived on Long Island mm-hmm. and uh saying Richie Blackmore is trying to get in touch with you and I thought well come on if Richie Blackmore is trying to get in touch with me it's really not that hard and <laughs> so I get this swirl of you know a half a dozen phone calls throughout the day and I said no this is crazy uh and I knew uh that his manager brute that Rainbow's manager Bruce Payne uh he had an office in Connecticut was which was right over the the state line so I rang him up and I said hi this is Steve Longo and um I said I've been getting calls from friends that Richie Blackmore is trying to get in touch with me and if that's the case I wanted to give you my contact details and Bruce said well Yeah, he was kind of hesitant. I don't know that he was ready. And then all of a sudden he said, You know, well, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, I'm easy tomorrow. He said, Why don't you stop by the office? And anyway, one thing led to another. And um, I brought some stuff of me playing, and they had heard uh, of, uh, you know, the things that we did in Rat Race Choir. And so they asked me to come to uh, an audition, which I went out to Long Island, I drove out to the island, and there was a single, you know, one kick drum, uh, just a four piece basic drum set. And, uh, and all the guys were there. And, and as it turns out, and Turner, the singer, old friend of mine from New Jersey, David Ro- Rosenthal, the keyboard player, same thing. I had glanced off Roger Glover, you know, over the years. Cookie, who was Richie's guitar tech, grew up on Long Island. So I knew him. Colin it's just, I knew almost everybody in the band, but Richie.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Which yep. made, if you know anything about Richie, uh, he does not like to be off balance. So he says to me, "Do you do a drum solo?" And I said, "Yeah." And he said, "How long?" I said, well, "Whatever you need." He said, "A minute, two minutes." I said, "Yeah, whatever you need. Five minutes, seven minutes." I said, "If you know if that's what you need, yeah. Ten minutes." And he's just taking the piss, right? So I. So I said, uh, "Yeah." I said, "Listen, whatever you need, you know, in a drum solo, you got it." So we start playing a couple of songs, and and he goes into "Long Live Rock and Roll," which is a shuffle, right? Right? And um, he sits down. He waves the keyboard player off. He sits down and unplugs his guitar, and and tells Roger to play. You know. Looks at Roger, goes like this, and so we're doing this shuffle beat. I'm a, I play a massive kit, and I'm an over player. I'm a lead drummer, just mm-hmm. like John was a lead bass player, and so he, so Roger's filling on bass, and we're playing together, and I, I love doing that. So I'm playing all stuff off of him, and then he looks at Roger and goes like this. So now I'm sitting there, Richie's unplugged, Ro, Roger's been you know played out. And I'm on my own in a shuffle on a tiny set of drums. And I said, oh, because I had heard the stories, you know, I had heard that, you know, Richie was a prankster or tough here and that. And I I didn't really know him, but I said, man, you know, if you want to see if I can play for 10 minutes. You're going to hear every frickin' note I've ever learned in my life. I'm and I mean, to. I am just playing. The, and my, my goal was, you're going to plug that guitar and play me back in, or we're going to be here all night. And so I'm playing on the rims, and I'm going the cymbals, and on the sides of the drums, and I'm going just berserk, right, until he can't take it anymore. <laughs> and he plugged back in and played me out. So um, that was kind of an omen that things were probably not going to go well. And then we went to the studio and um, we recorded a track and there were some. Uh, there were some differences of opinion of opinion about um, how tight we were playing and uh, what I should have just done, although I'm glad I didn't. What I should have done is said, oh, yeah, you're right. Let's do it again, which I didn't do. I said, nah, you're wrong. Let's go in and listen to it. And you really don't want to call mm-hmm. Richie out. And I, it was just not meant to be. He, the first thing he did in the studio and we'll leave it here. And, and the guy's a brilliant musician and you can't take any of that away from him. And I know some people that have played with him, Bobby Rondinelli for years and so on and so forth. But um, he's coming down the stairs to the lobby of the studio and i'm talking all rat race choir and i was going yeah long island nah, nah, nah. it's like a big you know home week old home week and he comes down the stairs and he goes oh rat race choir that's an interesting name who came up with that one <laughs> so i said bob dylan because it's from a bob dylan song right and he said oh really was he in the band and i said no he's a songwriter from greenwich village So I knew that it was going to go pear-shaped any minute. Just go in and do your thing. And I figured the only thing that I was going to get out of there with was my self-respect, not to be told that I did something wrong, that I didn't, Eh, you know, that's showbiz. It's the one, it's the one of those. I think everybody has to have one of those in their career. So that was mine.
0: Incredible. I love hearing those sorts of stories. Um, I'm a huge fan of Rainbow. In fact, my uh, Spotify 2022 wrapped came out just today and Rainbow was my number one uh, most Maybe. listened to artist again. Um, you mentioned Jolin Turner there. I mean, what, what, what kind of year was this then that, that you auditioned?
1: Well, oh God, it would have been uh, bent out of shape was the album that came out of it. So would it have been eighty? by the 80s and uh, and I stayed I did a lot of recording and touring with Joe Lynn Um, he was on the gig that we did with Jack Bruce he was on the on uh on the Cliff and Brian tour we had him open some shows Mm-hmm. Uh, it, he was a great guy to play with a fantastic voice I've done a number of uh, demos where I used him as the vocalist it was, he's a fantastic talent Joe
0: oh, brilliant absolutely fantastic I've had him on the show as well he's, he was great to chat to uh, Steve it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you I know time's pressing so uh, thank you so much for, for joining us here on Vintage Rock Pod and just to, to finish off um, Oxhoomed, why should we buy it go on give us it, give us it sum it up
1: because you will learn things that you didn't know about the greatest bass player of all time
0: and that's that brilliant it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you steve thank you so much for joining us
1: thank you for having me and uh, i thank all your fans for listening in on these crazy stories
0: a big thanks to steve luongo there please check out the john entwistle rarities Oxumed cracking collection of the ox's songs and some of the who on there as well now, I'd usually give you a top five at this stage of the show, but I've already done The Who a few months back when we had Bolts on. He toured with The Who and told some great stories of playing guitar with the band live and being with them in the studio as well. It's worth checking out if you're a big fan of the band. Just look for episode 69, Steve Bolton, and you'll be able to hear that fantastic chat. Now, last week's top five, inspired by Jim Cregan, was Rod Stewart's solo songs. Jim Cregan, of course, was Rod's right-hand man for decades, his songwriting partner on many of his hits, and guitar player in his band as well, of course. Again, it was another great interview, so make sure you check that one out. Episode 79, released last week. Anyway, my top five for Rod Stewart was, at one, Maggie May; two, Young Turks, three, You Wear It Well, four, Downtown Train, and five, The Killing of Georgie. Now, you guys were out in force with your thoughts on this one. Thank you so much. Pete Holmes, interestingly, though, said Maggie May, overplayed, overrated, which is interesting. I don't agree, but that's what makes music so great, isn't it? We all have our different perspectives, and it all means something different to each person. Thanks to George Piandes, he chose his number one, which was Hot Legs. Didn't make my list, but George's favourite. Maurice Gagnon had The First Cut Is The Deepest as his favourite. Beautiful song. Lisa Kuki said Forever Young, which is one of Jim Cregan's songwriting credits. That was her favourite. Jenny Bull said Downtown Train is her favourite Rod song. She says she loves Rod. Uh, John Dowell said his top track was Angel, and he's a big fan of The Faces. And Dave Couch included a few different songs in his top five compared to mine You Wear It Well Top the list but he also had Mandolin Wind and another song that I'd completely forgotten about it completely slipped my mind in a Broken Dream with Python Lee Jackson. It's a brilliant song, and to be honest with you, probably would have sneaked into my top five if I'd have remembered it, so I'm kicking myself for forgetting it, to be honest. Anyways, big thank you to everyone who got in touch this week. As I said earlier, I'd love to hear from you, so thank you so much. You can email vintagerockpod at gmail.com or message me on any of the social media sites. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod. It's dead easy. Well, that's it for me this week and this week's big interview show, in fact. Thanks for listening. We're approaching Christmas and I usually take a month or so off at this stage. I'm trying to juggle my work and home life to see if I can carry on the This Day Rocks episodes for you, at least. But no promises. I'll try my best. Make sure you subscribe to Vintage Rock Pod on your podcast app and get us on YouTube as well. Hit subscribe. Absolutely free, of course, and you get to see some of the video interviews I do with these megastars, too. Right, I'll be back tomorrow with another This Day Rocks. And remember, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of rock, just tell them, my music is better than yours. Take care.
2: It's NFL Draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.